we are in the last verses of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It's been a stunning book, lots to learn. And I thank you for going through all of it with me. Let's pray and then we'll see how he ends the letter. Our Father who art in heaven, how grateful we are for your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us through these verses. Would you bless the teaching of your word? Would you take charge of my mind, my mouth, and say to us what you want to say? And I pray that you will not only give it to us for knowledge, but that we will understand the application. And I pray that we will take it and use it and walk it out and that your kingdom will be more powerful, purer, more pleasing to you because we have understood your word. So would you cleanse us from every sin and unrighteousness and speak to us now. And I pray in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Last time we looked at five imperatives or commands that Paul gave the Corinthians that kind of summed up uh, the instructions that he has been giving them in the body of the letter. They were be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, be mature and courageous, or he said be a man, but that means mature and courageous, be strong, and let all you do be done in love. Now, the rest of the chapter flows out of those uh, commands, especially the last one where he says, let all that you do be done in love. Now, remember that all of these words are God breathed. It's been uh, kind of a hard discipline for me sometime through the years to really camp out in the closings of Paul's letters, in the begats. Did you ever work through the begats? I'm probably going to have to stand before the Lord and explain why I skipped the begats because they are as divinely inspired as the rest of the word. But remember that these are God-breathed. They're inspired. They're infallible. They're inerrant. And they are given to us with a divine purpose. So let's see if we can uh, mine like gold out of this passage what it is that God has for us to know. What we have in these, in these verses is a snapshot of the love of the fellowship, the fellowship of believers in the church as a whole, not just a single congregation, although they certainly apply to a single congregation, but the Corinthians needed to understand godly love. He wrote a whole chapter on it, 1 Corinthians 13. And so let's see what indications of godly love we can see in these closing verses that are simply examples in the life of Paul and in the lives of the other people that he mentions here and in the churches to which he refers. So let's begin in verse uh, 15. Now I urge you, brethren... You know the household of Stephanus. I'm not sure if that's Stephanus or Stephanus, but you know the household of Stephanus that they were the first fruits of Achaia. Now, let me tell you that Athens and Corinth were in Achaia. Achaia was a southern province in Greece, and both Athens and Corinth's, Corinth were there. Now, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia and that they had devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Now, hold your finger right there and look 
with me for just a minute in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. And when we get to verse 16, Paul is in Athens. He is in Achaia, one of those cities. And so um, let's read beginning in chapter 17 and verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was um, beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. they had never heard the gospel for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. And we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this is what I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. The King James says, live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. 
After these things, he left and went to Corinth. Now, if we read on into Acts 18, we would see that Paul spent the first few weeks witnessing primarily to the Jews in Corinth. But when they resisted and blasphemed the Lord, uh, he shook out his garments and he said, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That's who God called him to to start with. So most of the Corinthian converts were Gentiles, among whom were Stephanus and his household. Now he refers to them right here. Uh, Stephanus was one of the first persons in Corinth whom Paul baptized personally. We saw that in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul told us about Stephanus in chapter 1. Well, Paul traveled from Corinth after he had ministered there for a while to Ephesus. And remember that he is writing 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. Now, peek down into 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 17, and let me show you something. He says, And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. So Paul had some visitors that had come from Corinth to visit him in Ephesus. That's who these people are. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. It is thought that these three brought the letter from Corinth to Paul. Uh, you remember that Paul is answering a letter that they sent to him asking all kinds of questions. And so um, everybody, historians believe that these guys brought the letter to Paul and said, here, here are some questions for you. And Paul's answer is the book of 1 Corinthians. So Paul says here that the household of Stephanus were the first fruits of Achaia. First fruits of Achaia. Now, once household included his family as well as his servants and his slaves. So all of the household of Stephanus has, have heard the gospel. They've received Christ. And so Paul says they're the first fruits. We talked about first fruits a few lessons back. And you know that first fruits were the first part of a crop that was ready to be harvested. The first fruits indicated that more of the crop was about to be ready to harvest. So Paul is indicating here that the salvation of Stephanus and his household was a sign that God would reap a greater harvest in Corinth with more souls to come. So the believers to whom Paul was writing were a part of that harvest. So Paul is writing to that harvest. Stephanus was the first. More harvest has been uh, reaped and more souls have been saved. And so Paul is writing to that harvest. Well, what else does he tell us about the household of Stephanus? Back to chapter 16 and verse 15. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. They have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. They cared for fellow believers. They cared for fellow believers. This word translated devoted is an interesting word. It literally means to set in order. It frequently means to appoint or design uh, a, 
or designate a specific group, a person or a group to a specific assignment. So a church can assign ministries and responsibilities to its members. Now, originally, some qualified men were appointed to supervise the feeding of needy widows in the congregation back in Acts chapter 6. That was some of the first signs of the servants in the church, what they needed to do. But you notice that the scripture says that the household of Stephanus devoted themselves. Think about that for a minute. They assigned themselves the responsibility to look after other believers. They didn't wait for somebody to ask them. Sometimes in our culture today, we're hesitant to just be assertive and go ahead and do what we know to do. We wait for somebody to ask us or we wait to be given a position or an assignment. But these appointed themselves and they spontaneously tried to meet needs that they saw among the saints. They simply saw a need and met it. Nobody told them what to do. Nobody told them how to do it. They just saw it and did it. They responded to God, to the leadership, to the burden that he had placed on their hearts. Willingness and spontaneous service was key in the early church. Think about that. Willingness, spontaneous service was key in the early church. The word ministry here, they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, is the word diakonia in the original language. We get the word deacon from that word. And the word came to be associated with any service for the church, any servant heart, any service to the church. And that's why it's sometimes translated ministry. It could be setting up chairs. It could be seating people in the sanctuary. Whatever needs to be done to make the church an organized, well-functioning place, that's what a servant's heart is going to do. And so with these, we need to understand, because our culture doesn't always get this, it's voluntary. It's voluntary. It is voluntary, humble, submissive, personal service. And it's instigated by God in the heart of the person who needs to serve. So a person's life in a church, in a congregation, reveals him or her as one who deserves respect. We tend to, to respect people like that, that we see serving, quiet, calm, strong, uh, giving what needs to be done, setting order in the service. It's not a mere title or a position. Another translation of the word devoted is interesting. It's addicted, addicted. Uh, we might read it as, it as it might say, the household of Stephanus had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. What does that mean? They just couldn't wait to do it. They wanted to do it. They were driven to do it. They were constantly doing it. They were perpetually serving believers. And the strong, they strongly desired to do it. They wanted to, cause just couldn't wait to get there and serve believers. Um, and Paul says, verse 16, submit to people like that. Submit to people like that. 
that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Proper submission is the key to functioning in Christ's body. Now, that word in our culture doesn't always have a good connotation, but proper submission, biblical submission, is not lording over somebody. It's not taking that position of lording over another or of bowing to another. Proper submission, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says, submit yourselves to one another. I submit to you. It's reciprocal. Um, we, our, our question shouldn't be, whom should I be over? My question should be, whom should I be under? That's the mindset here. Now, what does that require? What do I have to have in order to be able to function that way? I have to have humility. Humility. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want grace. And so with our humility comes more grace and more grace and more grace from God. When we humble ourselves, God gives us grace and it makes us gracious. So there's a cycle here. Jesus said, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? Servant. Shall be your servant. Matthew 20, 26 through 28. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve. Service is at, the, is at the heart of a believer. One of our concerns, we need to think more and more about how we can properly submit to one another. Um, we're called here and in other places in Scripture, we're called to submit ourselves to those who are submitting to Christ. Now, that's a big qualifier right there. It's one thing to submit to somebody who is submitting to Christ, not just ordering you to do whatever it is they want you to do. This is a union in the Holy Spirit. Now, in a practical sense, we need to be on the lookout for godly men and women who are passionate about doing the Lord's will and the Lord's work and we need to go to those people and say, how can I help you? What do you need for me to do? Because we see them following the Lord. We can learn from them. We can let them be our examples. And they are a pattern for Christian living. The body articulates together like that. It functions like that. And as we submit and learn and we pray and mature, then our lives become examples of others examples of Jesus. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 13 for just a second. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct imitate their faith. 
So we're, we're giving permission here. We're giving almost command here to learn from other believers, mature believers who are following Christ. Then 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 5 and 6. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's warning the Corinthians to stop their selfishness, to stop their lack of submissiveness, and to follow the model because he was submitting to Christ's model so it would be good if they would follow him. We can learn Christ-likeness from one another. And I know that, you know, the big question a lot of times is what would Jesus do? Sometimes it's hard for us to transfer Jesus to this 21st century culture. But I can look at godly people who have mentored me in my life and whom I've seen and I can think, well, what would he do? What would she do? What can I see them doing in this situation? So go back now to 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 16, 16, 16, and let's look at to whom should we submit? To whom should we submit? That you be in subjection to such men or people and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Everyone who helps in the work and labors. Believers were not to demand their own rights and privileges. They're supposed to be following Christ. We're to find those whose heart it is to follow Christ and imitate them. We need to be looking for people who are praying for God's will, who are seeking God's will, who are acting in accordance with God's will, and join them. Join them. Genuine love that we're given by the Holy Spirit when we're saved, because the Holy Spirit would be that presence of genuine love in us, agape love, that carries with it an attitude of submission, an attitude of submission. Look at verse 17. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Paul's spirit was not being refreshed by the Corinthians. But these have come... And what have they done? They have refreshed his spirit. Paul was grateful that these three friends had come from Corinth to Ephesus to be with him. Another incredible content of the Christian life is companionship. Companionship, deep fellowship. It's important in Christian fellowship. These guys genuinely befriended Paul and they encouraged him, and they genuinely identified with his ministry. They were there, up close and personal. And Paul says they refreshed his spirit, and they had refreshed the spirit of the Corinthians, and what they had done was to help lighten their burdens just by being with them. You ever been there? And maybe you were burdened way down, and somebody just contacted you, came to check on you, 
Maybe they sat with you and you felt refreshed. The burden was lifted because somebody was there to help you do that. The last part of verse 18, therefore acknowledge such men, acknowledge such men, recognize them for what they really are, respect them, appreciate them, respond positively to them. You know, Corinthians were more inclined to criticize each other than to praise each other. Does that sound familiar? Maybe in our day. We have a lot to learn from the Corinthians. I think that's why Paul, why the, why the Holy Spirit put it in this book was because it was going to be stuff we needed to know for all the ages, for all churches, for all time. Corinthians tended to be arrogant. But these three guys were what? They were a breath of fresh air. Are there people in your life that are a breath of fresh air? Look at verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca, this translation says it's Priscilla, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. So here we see a glimpse of the church as a whole, not just a congregation, not just the congregation in Corinth or the congregation in Athens or the congregation in Ephesus. This is the whole church. And so people in these churches are scattered here and there. We know what it is. We've got different congregations scattered all over our county, all over our state, all over our country. Churches are scattered all over the world. And we are all parts of one body. The body is the church. We are members of the body of Christ. And all churches, all believers in some way or another are linked up with each other. We're connected. And it's just sometimes nice, maybe you're on a trip or even walking down the sidewalk to run into another believer that you don't even know, but there's connection. There's a link because of the common Holy Spirit that is in us. He mentions Aquila and Priscilla and their local church. Now let's remember them for just a minute. Aquila and Priscilla had been driven out of Rome because of their faith. And they were exiled in Corinth. So when Paul went to Corinth the first time, he met Priscilla and Aquila, and they became good friends. They were fellow tent makers. Some historians tell us that Paul stayed with them for a year and a half. Um, but anyway, they became valuable to Paul's ministry, and they accompanied Paul to Ephesus, which is where he is now. So he went from Corinth to Ephesus, and when he went, Priscilla and Aquila went with him. And they were there when he was writing this letter to the Corinthians, and they had done what? They had established a congregation in their home. They were just having church in their house, having people over to do what? Study God's word, worship, and pray, and be linked together. So the last part of verse 20 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, this in this day was given on the cheek or forehead, and it represents essentially what a hug would represent today. I have read that they, people started getting a little carried away with this through the centuries, and it evolved into a handshake, 
a hug, um, a pat on the shoulder, but it was a visible sign of affection. And it was a pure and meaningful expression of brotherly love or sisterly love. Um, and so even today, a, a warm handshake or an arm around the shoulder can express an affection. It can be an affirmation. Um, I know sometimes, you know, if I'm with a group of people, for somebody to just come and, you know, pat me on the shoulder uh, is an encouraging thing. What do you do? You feel noticed, you feel appreciated, and we can express that kind of affection to one another, and it especially needs to be done and be visible in the body of Christ. Then verse 21. Let's just go ahead and read to the end. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May, the, may love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The main part of the letter was dictated to a scribe. And then Paul took the stylus and he did the writing himself for these last two or three verses. Now, perhaps that established its authenticity. They would know it was from Paul if he signed it. So he first, though, gives a stern warning. Look at it. The warning is against anyone who does not love the Lord. If anyone does not love the Lord, verse 22, let him be accursed. A person who does not love the Lord doesn't belong to the Lord, not one of God's children. And therefore, he does not belong in the fellowship of God's people. Love here is the word phileo, not agape. This is, this is just a, an affection, a tender affection towards somebody. Let me just insert here, God accepts that kind of love. Um, I didn't have time to, or didn't take time to research it, but this went through my mind when I was studying and preparing this lesson. We talk a lot about agape love, agape love, and that's what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself. Does not behave itself unseemly. Um, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. That's a picture of God's love, and there's no emotion in it. Those are choices of behavior. Phileo love is a tender affection. There's some emotion there. And so God uses and accepts both of those kinds of love. Go back to when Jesus was confronting Peter for having denied him three times. And Jesus said to Peter, do you agape o me? I don't know Greek, so I'm making up the pronunciation of these words. Do you agape me? Number two, do you agape me? Number three, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I phileo you. And Jesus accepted it. 
God accepts phileo love. God accepts that tender affection that look toward him. But he says, if you don't have that, Paul said a person like that should be considered accursed. The word accursed means devoted to destruction. That means that if you are determined to not be God's child, then you are determined to go to hell. You're determined to be headed toward destruction. You are devoted to destruction if you don't choose to do something about it. So their lack of love for the Lord reveals their lostness. Now, sometimes we will have people in congregations. Sometimes the Holy Spirit may let you know there's something wrong with this link. And the Lord may give you a prayer assignment for people that maybe they're in church, but you may not be really sure that they're saved. What are you going to look for? Love. Love for the Lord and love for the brethren. And then he just says, Maranatha. That just means, Lord, come. I don't know. I read different, several different things about what this is in this particular place for. Nothing really registered in my heart. I don't know. I relate to it because sometimes I'm in a situation, you know, we get in situations in our world today where we just say, Lord, come on. Just, Lord, come. It may have been that he had all of this on his mind and it was just like, Lord, come. Maybe he's saying, Lord, come, you know, so that he would remove the lostness that's in our world today. I don't know. He just said, just right there, Lord, come, Maranatha. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May the love, may love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. What a prayer. What a prayer. Now, we said in the beginning that these verses are kind of a snapshot of what love looks like in the fellowship of a church. We see the body of Christ in these verses, not the Corinthian church, but in Paul's life from different places. We see the body of Christ articulating together. And so, I want to be able to apply this to my life. I want us to be able to apply this. Our churches need this today. I don't know of a church that doesn't need this today. And so I want us to look for just a minute and say, what does the love of the fellowship in a church look like? What does it look like? What can we learn? What does the dark world around us need to see in the body of Christ? Paul started, remember, with those five imperatives. The world needs to see this. We need to see this in each other. We need to be encouraging each other in these five things. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be mature and courageous. Be strong and let all that you do be done in love. How does a church express its love? How do you do that? How did they do that here? The church is about people holding up other people. Um, I guess structurally, if you're in a building, you can't go out and just build a single wall that's going to stand by itself for a long period of time. What are you going to do? You're going to brace it up with other walls. We, we've got to be about the business of holding up other people, letting other people hold us up. You know, I've run into a lot of people through the years that didn't want you holding them up. I can hold myself up, but I'll be willing. I'll hold you up, but I don't you holding me up. 
Uh-uh. The church is where we hold up one another. It's about mutual love and harmony and peace. It's about accountability. It's about believers' lives being intertwined, supporting one another, sustaining one another, leaning on one another, just needing to be together, knowing that they're there even when they're not present physically. It's about restoring one who has fallen when a believer falls, we don't just walk off pointing a finger at him. What are we going to do? Help him up. Get him up. Then build him up so that we're constantly building up one another. That's what these people were doing here that Paul's referring to in the end of this letter. Building up one another. You know, that's an interesting phrase. It probably could just be a whole study. But the phrase one another occurs 100 times in the New Testament. One another. It means mutually or reciprocally. 59 of those one another's are specific commands. Now, I'm sorry that I won't, don't have the time to, take, to just read the whole 100 or especially the whole 59. Sometimes what it tells us not to do to one another, sometimes it tells us what to do. But you, these will be familiar to you. Be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Honor one another above yourselves. Stop passing judgment on one another. Instruct one another. Carry one another's burdens. Admonish one another. Comfort one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Believer submitting to believer. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Encourage one another. Don't grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. These things tell us the whole list. Just We need, just need to go back sometimes maybe and read the whole 100. But these things tell us how to relate to one another. And all of them express an aspect of how we're to love one another. If I love you, I'm going to encourage you. If I love you, I'm going to admonish you. Sometimes we need to be corrected, brought back in line with God's will. But I'm not going to do that the way the Corinthians, I think, were doing it, by finger pointing and arrogance saying, you need to quit doing that. I don't do that. No, 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 no. Go back to the grace. I need grace. Okay? And so I'm going to encourage you. I may admonish you, but it's for the purpose of helping you up. And I'm not going to go off and leave you lying there, bleeding, if I love you. All of these things express an aspect of how we are to love one another. We could just make a list. Now, in this snapshot, Paul gives us, um, he first told us that the household of Stephanus were the first fruits of Achaia. 
That means that somebody, namely Paul, but somebody loved them enough to share the gospel with them. One of the contents of the love of the church is going to be sharing the gospel. It's going to be being concerned about the lost. Jesus loved the lost. God loved the lost, loved the whole world enough that he what? Sent his son to die on the cross to save us all from all of the sins of all time. And so when we love, we're going to be driven to share the gospel, to let lost people know that they don't have to be devoted to destruction, that they can choose the way of escape, which is Christ Jesus, not the way to destruction. It's the way to eternal life with him. So we saw them sharing the gospel. Then we saw people serving one another. Remember that this was willing and spontaneous service. Willing and spontaneous service. I've had people through the years say, well, nobody asked me. Nobody asked me to do that. Well, God asks you. And when God asks you, that overrides what anybody else does. We need to just go on and do it. It wasn't about holding an office. It wasn't about, oh, that's the preacher's job. That's the deacon's job. It's all of our jobs to be servants, to serve one another in ministry. Hold on to the words of willing and spontaneous. Just do it. If the Lord tells you to do it and you're obedient, don't worry about the rest of it. Don't worry about the rest of it. Don't worry about if anybody likes it. Worry about if the Lord likes it. Because doing it with this attitude, doing what he told you to do, you never know what kinds of doors are going to be open, either opportunities for lost people to be saved or for believers to grow. They submitted themselves to all those who were faithfully doing the Lord's work. They submitted themselves to all those who were faithfully doing the Lord's work. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and say this out loud since it's just us. There are some people who want to take that verse, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, and make that in real bold print and a whole lot larger font than any of the rest of them. Certainly wives need to submit to their husbands. But what does this say? You all, male, female, none of that's ever mentioned, you all submit to those who are faithfully doing the Lord's work. What are we going to do? I'm going to be looking for men and women who know God's will, who pray, who can help me, who can teach me that I can join with to accomplish God's purpose. He's clear about it. They submitted themselves in this early church. They submitted themselves to all those who were faithfully doing the Lord's work. All godly people are to be respected and submitted to. Some are more mature than others. But we all submit. What are we going to do? We're going to handle those gently. We're going to hear them. We're going to receive them. We're going to learn from them. As we submit to people who are committed to the Lord's will and the Lord's work, then we're going to learn and grow and mature. 
we grow to be more like Christ. We also saw in the passage precious companionship. Precious companionship. Companionship is a byproduct of serving, of being involved with other believers. You know, sometimes companionship, somebody just may come and sit with somebody who's sick or stand with somebody who's in trouble or work together in a task or pray together. You know, I believe that one of the most intimate and personal things you can do with a person is pray with them, where there's a freedom to really pray one's heart in seeking the Lord, seeking his will. It's an intimate thing to do. And Paul says here, you know, he says he was grateful for this companionship. And he said, these, these guys refresh my spirit. Do you have people in your life that refresh your spirit? You know, sometimes it's just like a breath of fresh air to run into another believer that you know is praying for you and that cares about you and that um, is encouraging to you that just kind of says, you know what, this is going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And so we all need Christian friends who are refreshing to be around. Now, you know, just like I do, and I'm going to say this out loud, aren't there some people that when you see them coming, you think, oh, dear, there she comes. Christ is not like that. And he doesn't want his body to be like that. We're not to do that. We're to be refreshing to one another, not dishonest, not fake. But sometimes just the presence of another person who's being honest with the Lord can be refreshing and encouraging and maturing for me. God made us for himself, but he also made us for each other. He designed the church for us to be linked together every believer in the whole world is linked to other believers in the whole world. Sometimes God comforts us through others. Sometimes maybe your heart is heavy or you're burdened. Aren't you just glad to see some people coming? Maybe it's a phone call. Or some people are just gifted in writing notes and they come at the right time and you are comforted by another believer. In God's pattern for spiritual leadership, godly persons rise to leadership positions by godliness. Now, sometimes today, um, we get that a little bit turned around and we have designed the church to be like the world or like a business instead of what's in this book. What is godliness? Godliness is right belief, right living, and loving care for others. And instead of looking for that as our primary thing sometimes, then we look in other places. Now, now God, what he's saying here is that this pattern for spiritual leadership, that godly persons are to be respected. We're to respect them. Sometimes we may not like what they're doing and may not agree with them, but we need to respect them because why? They're godly. Because God's ultimately the one in control anyway. And when the church follows and respects godly believers because they're godly, 
The body is strengthened in fellowship and service and in love. The body is stable. It is an example to the world. And when we choose leaders just simply because of their money or their prestige or education or influence or talents or how long they've been there, we mess up this, the model. We mess up the sample. We follow the world standards rather than God's standards, and the world standards will not promote the kingdom. So we've got to hunker down, look for those people. And I know sometimes in some of our churches we're asked to elect a certain number of people for something. Well, if God has not shown you that number of people, that's a burden. That's a problem. We need to go to God and God alone and come in agreement as believers. This is what God's saying. And then all together we bow before what God has said. And there's no competition in the body. What is the Lord doing? Next thing we saw here was hospitality. Some of these New Testament early church people were some of the most hospitality-oriented people I've ever seen. They stayed with one another. They'd drop in. They'd spend several nights. They took care of one another. Why? Because they were believers. Christian love always produces hospitality. Hospitality was a natural outgrowth of their love for Christ. What are they wanting to do? They're wanting to serve. They're wanting to minister. They're wanting to encourage. They're wanting to feed And they were driven to do that because the love of Christ drives us to do that. And there's Aquila and Priscilla that he's referred to here. They established a congregation in their house. That's a good thing. When people come into your home to worship, to pray, that's the church in a house. It doesn't mean that you're trying to replace your own congregation or a denominational church. But this is real and it needs to be happening in our day. And then in this snap snapshot, there was visible affection. There was visible affection for their culture, a holy kiss, for our culture, a handshake, a hug, a pat on the back. But do you know what? The world needs to see us loving each other. When there is love and unity and peace and harmony in the body of Christ, there is incredible strength. There is strength. And there is a spiritual stability that shows Christ to the world around us. Jesus said, by this shall mankind, shall all men know that you are my disciples if you Love one another. And there will be visible signs of that love. Let us be a godly people. Let us learn from this letter to the Corinthians about what can happen to a church, what can happen to believers, and what can be done to correct it, what can be done to bring it back to the place that God has called the church to be. When you know that you are loved when you know that other believers care about you and pray for you and you're held accountable, but you're also helped and nurtured, 
you feel safe. Church needs to be a safe place to confess your sins to one another. You know, I have horror sometimes if you think you need to confess your sins to one another and, and you share it with somebody and they look at you and say, you did what? Mm-mm. What? Grace. We know with the grace and the graciousness that God has given us how to deal with our own sin. And it's because we're dealing with our own sin that we know how to help somebody deal with theirs. It's the people that are not dealing with their own sin you have to worry about. They're the ones who are going to say, you did what? Church needs to be a safe place. Relationships, companionships need to be safe for me or you to be able to go to one of those people and say, I'm struggling with this sin. Will you pray for me? And the New Testament says healing comes from that. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And I believe that does include physical healing. God doesn't always do that, but sometimes when we need physical healing, I think the first thing you need to do is go to the Lord and say, what sins do you need for me to deal with? What? And then do it. And free God up for that to not be a barrier that it could be. So I I think about what, what I see in this church here where these people are loved and they're cared about and they're prayed for and they're held accountable and they're helped and they're nurtured and they're safe there and they feel secure and they feel stable. And what a wonderful place that is to be. And I stand here knowing and you know that a lot of people don't have that. They don't have that. I think sometimes they want that, but don't know what they want. They know they don't know how to describe or design whatever, whatever it is that, that they know they have a need, but don't know what it is their need is. Don't know their need. I read a story a long time ago, and I, don't, I know that I don't remember it accurately, but let me leave you with this thought. The church needs to be a place. A congregation needs to be a place. The body of Christ needs to be a place that fulfills all of these things in the snapshot where we truly love each other, help each other, encourage one another, lift each other up, correct one another without um, arrogance and hatred hold hands and walk together to be sure that everybody finishes. And imagine now that all of that's going on in the body of Christ and that the world or a lost person could look through the window into that, never having experienced that, not knowing what that is, but look in there at all of that light and salt and say, I want some of that. I want that. I want to be there. I want to do that. And then we have to be, in, be faithful to invite them in. It's so easy to get comfortable in that fellowship that we become cliquish and other people don't feel that they belong. May it never be. May it never be. We've all got a lot of work to do. We're all in churches that have got a lot of work to do. 
and until Jesus comes. This is the pattern. This is the model. This is what he says he will use. And let us be known as people who just simply love one another in Christ and let it be a love that is born out of our love for Christ and his love for us as we're transformed, as then we then become powerful witnesses to a lost and broken world. May God bless you and may he show us how to do this together. Amen.